Welcome to another episode of the Seasonals Podcast. We've got a much-anticipated guest today, but first I want to announce that for every person that gets a subscription to the Seasonals Quarterly Magazine, we will send a copy of any issue of the magazine to someone, anyone, of your choice. Because if you love our magazine, you probably know someone else that would love our magazine, and we want them to get a chance to check it out. But wait, this is not just for future subscriptions. This is something we wanted everyone to be a part of, past subscribers as well. So figure out your impressionable high school or college-age cousin's address, or send mom and dad or grandma and grandpa a peek into the seasonal lifestyle. Take this opportunity to grab yourself a subscription at theseasonals.com shop, and write in the comments where and to who you'd like the free copy to go to. And don't forget to include which issue you'd like them to receive. And if you've already got a subscription, either send us an email at hq at theseasonals.com, or we'll come to you. We're rolling this baby out right now. And that's it. Here's David Dentinger. I don't have to work a traditional career in order to retire. And there are people who are working traditional careers who still feel that pressure, that like they aren't going to be able to retire. You know, and it's like, well, if you take just a few hours and read a little bit, it's amazing what you can change about your financial situation. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. Dettinger. How are you, David? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Great. Good to have you on finally. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So give me the quick version of your seasonal resume. I think I'm, well, I, this sounds weird. I shouldn't say I'm unique. It sounds really stuck up, but I'm unusual among your seasonals in that I never worked the nine to five. I never worked the job that was like the thing before seasonal life. I graduated uh, from college in 2010 and I had gone through college at this time where it was just like the economy is crumbling, institutions are falling, there is no job market and that was kind of the buzz and I think I didn't really have a clear idea of what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go and it was just like, God, I'm never going to make as much money as my parents, I'm never going to have stability. I'd given up on that in college And so I kind of did what I knew. And what I knew was I had been working camps. And so I basically stayed doing that um, throughout my 20s. I initially started off in college right after high school. I was working at a Boy Scout camp, this just stunningly beautiful, uh, like old Boy Scout camp in the Cascades called Camp Black Mountain. It no longer exists. It was fantastic. And it just crashed and burned uh, shortly after I left it. And then I went from there because I was kind of tired of the Boy Scouts and, you know, working at places without women and uh, switched over to Catalina. And I started going down there in the summers and teaching sailing. And that was kind of the thing that I did in the summer in college was that I taught sailing on this just beautiful blue water island off the coast of LA. And I loved it out there. And I kept doing that for basically my entire 20s. And that was initially just in the summers. And I was kind of just hanging out with kids, having a great time. 
and then it transitioned into doing uh, KELP, the Catalina Environmental Leadership Program, where we were doing education, where the objective was not just to entertain, but then, you know, keep kids thinking about the world around them and their role in it and how every choice you make has impacts and, uh, I don't know, just teaching rather than just fun. And then as I was doing that, I would do this like season back and forth, like fall, travel a little bit or go home in the winter for a second and then do the spring. And then I would do the summer. But eventually I got tired of people who were also working at this kelp program coming back from the off season and sharing these stories about these cool things they had done and going to these amazing places. And I'd just been like sitting on Catalina doing the same thing we always did. And so I started experimenting with other places. And so I started going to, initially I did a summer in San Francisco, which was informative, but but not wonderful. And then I, <laughs> I ended up coming to Ketchikan kind of by chance. Somebody who used to work on Catalina uh, was running a tour up here and I got hired on at the Zodiac tour in Ketchikan. And that kind of started increasingly to draw me into the orbit of Southeast Alaska and further and further from Southern California until I eventually moved up here. And up here, I've been doing kind of a combination of guiding and working with kids. So that's kind of been my career is working on the ocean and working with kids. I do mental health in the winter here. So I work with kids with severe emotional disturbances and try to help them regulate themselves. And then in the summer, I guide tours. Initially, I did for three summers, I did the Zodiac tour. And now I'm doing uh, charter fishing with Baranoff. Baranoff Fishing Excursion is the, the company, I think. Anyway, that's what I do now. I kill fish. And what a place to kill fish it is. It's one of the main reasons I came up here was to be able to find exciting new fishes and kill them. I mean, that, that sounds terrible. I love these fish. I, I have so much respect for them. I've learned so much about them this summer especially, and I could probably talk about fish more than anybody wants to hear about fish, but I... I, I'm, I'm ready to, if you want to. Let's talk about fish. Okay. So when I'm out there on tour, this tour that I'm running this year, um, first year doing it, and I've learned so much. And I think the primary focus of the tour is to catch lunch. So you go out, you fish, and you bring whatever you caught into a camp that we have out in the woods down the coast uh, across from, do you know Bold Island? Uh, yeah, it's basically on the channel there next to it. And we bring the food in and they cook it up, and these people have this fish that they just caught, and it's as fresh as fish can possibly be, and they have this Alaskan experience, and it's an amazing way to see the water around here. Primarily, we're going for rockfish. You familiar with rockfish at all? There's like 37 different species in the state. They are all long-lived. They all give uh, live birth, which is really unique for fishes, like something like 95% of fish in the ocean, uh, you know, put their eggs out in the water, sperm out in the water. The the fun stuff happens out there just floating in the water and they develop out in the water. Or like salmon, for example, will lay their eggs down in the bottom of the creek, fertilize them in the bottom of the creek. It happens outside of the body. Whereas these fish hook up like uh, other organisms we're mo- more familiar with and the young hatches. So rockfish have sex. Yes, in, in short, which makes them really special fishes. They're, they're sexy fish. That's crazy. <laughs> Pardon me for getting too into this. Uh, they also... Oh, how... I'm trying to imagine fish sex at this point. I mean... What does it look like? Have you caught two fish? Well, as far as I know, I haven't interrupted any 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 fish sex, but I, it's possible. 
Um, I would imagine it would look a lot like, I don't know, two rabbits or two mice or whatever. You know, they just they just hook up for a second and then that's, you know, Is one goes away. one of them upside down? I think they just kind of go side to side, but I imagine it's a lot like what you would see if you've ever seen Shark Sex. You guys watch Shark Sex, right? I haven't seen Shark Sex. Maybe some of the listeners have seen Shark Sex. Is, I've spent too much time in marine biology. This is, fish sex is where it goes. But it's just fascinating that that's uh, unique in the, in the ocean. They also all have venomous spines, so I'm always getting stuck by those. I dropped one yesterday on my foot and stung me through the boot. It's amazing. They just have these big row of spines on their back and you know it's kind of like a mild bee sting you know searing pain followed by numbness for about 30 seconds and uh yeah they're just incredible there's so much diversity in appearance of these fishes and i, I love finding them out there every now and then even at the end of a whole summer of doing nothing but find and kill these rockfish i'm still pulling them up sometimes like mm, what species is that um when i see these fish every day and it's it's great on facebook do you follow the unusual marine whatever? Yes. Okay, I've seen you post on there a yeah, couple it's, times. It's wonderful. It's a good resource for people. I, I drives me nuts when people say inaccurate stuff about fish on there. Yeah. Sometimes I think in Alaska, there's is this is a problem with guiding in general is that people don't get their information from a reputable source. We all as guides rely pretty much on word of mouth, right? Like you learn how to give the tour, you learn the primary information pretty much from the haphazard training that you have or just other guides who just heard it from other guides who heard it from other guides. And some of that is made up. Like on the Zodiac tour, there's a boat in Thomas Basin called the Stimson, you, you know it? It's yeah. like this old wooden boat. It's got the sign on, it says from 1914. I assume that that's accurate. It's super cool, you know, 105 years old. But um, the owner of the company that I was working at, the Zodiacs, he said... For the longest time, he told us that that boat used to haul icebergs down here from up north. Uh, they would go into Icy Bay, get an iceberg before refrigeration, haul it down. Super cool story, right? It's like, that's something I want to share with my guests. That's super interesting, you know? And and then I ended up meeting the one of the people in the family who owns that boat. He's like, yeah, we brought it up here in the 70s. It's like... <laughs> And it's like, I wonder how many facts are like that. And so there's there's so much of that sometimes on that unusual marine life page where it's like, oh, yeah, it's a this. It's totally a chili pepper rockfish. It's totally a Puget Sound rockfish, you know, with such certainty when really little dubious identification. But it was super exciting the other day. Um, I was out and cruising along on the water, just beautiful bluebird day where you've got like just no clouds in the sky. The water's glassy out there. And I see this fin like kind of breaking the surface and kind of just wobbling a little bit. I'm thinking it's a porpoise and I drive over to it and it's this huge uh, triangular fish fin. And I'm thinking like, damn, it's a shark, right? And it ends up being a mola mola, an ocean sunfish. It was at the surface in about a thousand feet of water off of Carroll Inlet. And I would never have expected to see that here. I mean, I, I don't think anyone expects to see those anyway, no matter where you are. There's that stupid video of the guys in Boston like getting way too excited about it. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. All these guys have this thick accent are just like, well, what's that? Anyway, I can't do it. Regardless, it was so cool to see, you know, a six foot long fish weighing a couple hundred pounds just kind of wobble along out there. Hanging There's out. mysteries out there to be found in the deep. And uh, it's great to be in a position to see them. There's some 
secrets that you only get to see if you're out on the water every day. And I'm very lucky to be in that position. It's like fishermen and guides and biologists and everybody else tends to miss it unless you get really, really lucky. Loves to ask about the story. Uh, Yeah. So this is your first season being a charter captain. Tell me about what your expectations were going in. And now that you've almost finished a season, how it went. I think the big thing that I've realized this summer is just it's amazing how my confidence and I think people's confidence in general can wax and wane. At the start of the season, I was actually out with you, uh, as you well remember, I'm sure. And uh, I was running a barren off boat basically by myself for the first time ever. And they'd kind of encouraged me to go out and run this skiff by myself. And I'm going out, checking out areas and all this stuff. And I managed to run that thing into a rock right off of the camp. And initially, I was even talking to you that day about how I was feeling so good about the summer. I was super excited to be working that job. It was the first time I was ever using my captain's license really professionally and transporting people on the water. And I was excited to learn all these things. And my like balloon of confidence was not not just like pricked, not deflated, like shredded. Like it was like it was like it was thrown into a blender in that moment. When we struck that rock, it was it was one of the worst moments of of my life in the last several years. And calling the company and having to deal with that and oh my God. That was that was a really difficult moment. And then that check of like my confidence just like dropping way down combined with the pressure of learning how to fish, learning where the rockfish are, where like what gear to use, how to find them, how to deal with the group, how to do all that made May this incredibly challenging time where I was just like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. I I was very lucky to have the support from my girlfriend, Jamie, that I had at that time because she was so pumped to be out there. This is her second season doing it and uh, working with her. She's still teaching at school at the time, coming home every night, super pumped to be hearing my fishing stories and instead hearing me going off about how difficult it is and how hard of a time I'm having but we got through that, and I slowly started to figure out where these rockfish are, how the sonar works, what they're going to grab onto, and how to manage time out there and how to make this tour work. And now it's just like so much fun. Every day I'm going out there and I have these tools to be able to explore the bottom. It's like I'm running an aquarium with an outboard. I'm going out there, I'm parking over the fish or trying to find new areas of fish, dropping down into them and hauling them up to the surface. And if there's something I want, they die. And if there's something I don't, I very carefully release them to the bottom and make sure that they're going to live because I don't want to kill anything that we're not going to eat. And I'm trying to show people what's going on with these fish while I'm doing it. I'm giving them a lot of the same rambles that I just gave you about rockfish and how long they live and what they eat and what they do and what their role is in this ecosystem. In a lot of ways... Chartering, I'm, I'm still using a lot of the skills that I picked up on Catalina, talking to people about these ocean ecosystems and how they operate. Now, how excited are these people going with you to hear all this stuff? I think it, it varies from person to person. I think there's, there's often questions. Like, if you are coming to Alaska, if you're from anywhere east of the Rockies, you've never heard of a rockfish the way I mean a rockfish. Um, when people on the East coast use rockfish, they're talking about like a striped bass or something, something that I don't know anything about East coast fishes. See, when I got here, I thought it was a joke. Oh, I caught a rockfish. 
like, oh, I caught a rock, basically. Well, that is also a joke because we often do catch rocks. Yeah. Um, but these fish do primarily kind of loiter around the rocks is, is why they get called that. But common names are tricky. No matter what the fish is, like, it gets called different things everywhere. There are rock fish that get called sea bass. There's Sometimes on the West Coast, people use rock cod to describe them. To be specific, they're all in the genus Sebastes. And they all live a long time. They all have venomous spines. They all give live birth. And those are like defining characteristics that make it this fish. They're all predator fish. I, I could probably get more into fish than we want to necessarily. but I think we're getting close, but we're not there oh, Okay, yet. okay, I'll keep going. I think fishmongers tend to mislead people. For example, the largest and one of the longest lived of the rockfish species here, the yellow eye rockfish, everybody in Ketchikan knows yellow eye, gets called Pacific Red Snapper, which is yes, like this... all the time. Oh my God, I hate that name. It drives me nuts. There's a lot of Alaskans who insist that's like the name to call it. Common names are, you know, kind of misleading always anyway. But yellow eye rockfish, like, lets you know, like, West Coast, it's one of the rockfish. It's got those characteristics. But they're calling it a Pacific Red Snapper in order to market either charters or the fish meat itself to people from the East Coast who know Red Snapper. And it really, biologically, just it, it isn't that similar to whatever that thing is on the East Coast that's, I guess, a good fish to eat and stuff. It just it happens to be red. It happens to be the same color, and it's it's a large fish compared to the other rockfish. It gets bigger than the others, and so it's prized for that reason, just because it'll pull harder on your pole when it comes up to the surface. And that's one in particular. I think that's, in a lot of ways, the most important rockfish that we have here from a, I don't know, like it's, it's the biggest prize of these fish, and it's the one that when Ketchikan locals complain about our our charter that's the one they're thinking about most because that's a fish where it lives such a long time and our charters have decreased their numbers uh, talk to any captain they'll they'll tell you that they used to be able to drop a line off birth one and get into a big yellow eye and that our charters have basically eliminated that possibility they live 150 years and so for them to get to that size it takes a long time for them to recover we're going out every day and we're hammering them now what I was surprised to learn working in this company this summer was just that so many captains are trying really hard never to get them. Like my goal on tour is to never even see a yellow eye rockfish. Like if I bring one up, I'm going to try really hard to let it go. A lot of times they're little these days in the areas I'm fishing because I don't tend to run as far or go as deep to be able to find them. But every now and then you do pull up a hog of a fish and they're beautiful, you know, bright orange and they fight a little harder, especially at the bottom. By the time they get to the surface, the pressure change has really jacked them up a lot and they usually kind of stop fighting. But you see this big thing come up. It's super exciting. But I don't need to kill something that has lived 70 years for lunch. You know, I want people to have an experience. It's fun to see it, but if at all possible, I'm not trying to bring that up. But if I do, I want to, I want to let it go because I don't need to kill anything that like, you know, potentially made it through a world war <laughs> so that people can have, you know, fish stew for lunch. There are smaller fish that I can do for that. That'll taste just as good. So, or better or better if it's that old. Yeah. So now coming up to the end of the season, what are you going to get into during the winter? Um, I will go back to the nonprofit I've been working with, Community Connections, and I will be working with kids with severe emotional disturbances. So most of these kids have been through trauma, and what I do is I, I work one-on-one -on -one with them. So uh, they're generally, it, it's kids who've 
been through some some serious stuff. Are, are you familiar with like ACEs, adverse childhood experiences? Basically, there's a there's a list of things that you can experience when you're young, like uh, a divorce, sexual abuse, um, family member with substance abuse, family member, I don't know, like abandonment. There's a number of things. And basically, the more of these adverse childhood experiences you have, it increases your risk factors for a lot of problems later in life, incarceration, addiction. It's kids who've dealt with some of that stuff. And what they've found is, is that if you've dealt with some of these issues and there's a stable adult in your life, whether especially grandparents, it seems to be like uh, that what's happening a lot for kids is that grandparents are the ones that sometimes step in and really become that stable force for them. But um, my job is to be a stable adult. When a kid blows up, when a kid's having a difficult day, or when they can't function in a classroom, my job is to be an extension of that kid's patience, an extension of the teacher's patience, to be someone who supervises them. If they need to walk out of the room or walk out of the building, there's an adult with them so that they have the space to do that is one of my primary things. I help them put systems in place in order to manage behavior. You know, if a kid's having an issue, if possible, I'm going to try to talk to that kid about it if they're, if they're at a place where they can and come up with a plan to try to deal with it. If they can't talk about it, one of the things I do is I distract them. I say or do something that is surprising and will throw them off of whatever track they're on. One of the things I love to do is hand a kid a ball or hand a kid uh, like silly putty or like something that they're not expecting or, or even just saying something weird or funny or asking them, you know, what's the difference between the green goblin and the Hulk? Or like, like how is that different? Like, did they get, did they get green and big the same way? You know, a question like that to the right kid might be enough to throw them off of whatever track they're on. And if that's a destructive antisocial behavior, whatever it is, it, it's a powerful tool to be able to redirect them. And so that's, that's kind of what I do. I, I follow kids around and try to keep them, keep them on track a little bit. Now, you've worked with kids a lot. You said most of your 20s. And now I think this is just another way of doing that and using all those skills you've accumulated doing that. What are some of the big ones that most people don't know coming from the outside when you're dealing with kids that are probably more important for kids than adults? I, I think one of the big mistakes people make in dealing with kids is assuming that they are fundamentally different from adults. I think a lot of time at Kelp, uh, Catalina, we would try to come up with like a way of engaging with a 7-year-old and a 9-year-old and a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old and how that's different from each one. And I, I tend to, if possible, try to treat them as much like adults as possible, to have as complex of a conversation with them as you can, uh, to ask them unusual questions, I think is, is one of the best, the best things with anybody, though, is asking an unusual, open-ended question. Whenever you want to connect with someone, just ask them a question that you would want to be asked, that you would want to answer something that sparks inspiration. A good question is better than a good answer. An answer, even a correct answer, even a beautifully correct answer, is the end of thought. A question is the beginning of thought. It's, it's sparking that fire in someone to go in a new direction. And I think that's, that's one of the major tools that we picked up at Kelp was 
to be able to just ask excellent questions. One of the things I did when I was on Catalina was I came up with something called the question arsenal. And I just made a list of like hundreds of questions. I would just make them up off the top of my head. And some of them would be things like, what do you think are like issues in the world that are important enough that you would want to spend some of your time and your life like working to fix? Um, or one of them might be like, which superhero uh, do you connect with most? It can be so surface level like that, but it should always be something that can't be answered with a yes or no, an open-ended question that can't be answered with a single word because a middle school kid's tendency is always to answer with the bare minimum response. And if they're doing that to you, I think it's on you as the educator or the adult to come up with a more interesting question um, because you probably just asked a question like, how was your day? What did you do today? And it's, it's so broad and so lame, and it's so easy to just be like, stuff. Right, and, and they've heard it a hundred times. That's the other thing, especially with like high school kids. Try so hard to never ask a high school kid, what are they going to do after high school? Or like, where are you going to go to college? And I think that's the other thing, too, is like ask yourself, the, like when you're asking anybody a question, how often have they heard that question? Whether, you know, it's it, whoever it is, if they've heard it a million times, maybe don't ask it. And if they say that, like, follow up with a different one. Throw something in there that'll totally, I don't know, throw them for a loop or get them to remember that, like, oh, this is something I've never thought about before. That's your opportunity when talking to a kid. I think kids are great, and not kids, young people, young adults, but people of less advanced years. I don't know. Kids, kids is reductive, right? It's kind of patronizing. Right. And yeah. I, I use that I all the time. I call people kid when I want them to be pissed off at me. <laughs> it, it works great, uh, especially if the, kid, the young person is already angry. But I think... Well, I do it to adults. Uh, yes, that, that'll work too. I think just um, finding ways to uh, connect with them on a level that is, you know allowing them to express themselves as best they can. And it's amazing the complexity of conversation that you can have with even a five or six year old. Um, and it gets better as it goes on, obviously. But like, I don't know, that kids are hearing things and are very perceptive and are experiencing the world and constantly absorbing information and absorbing experience even when you don't think they are. When they're in the other room or you're talking about something that you think a kid like couldn't understand, a lot of times their intuition is picking it up. They're learning. They're, they're like sponges. And I think it's the responsibility of all of us to be asking ourselves, what am I leaking out that they're sponging up? You know, what, what influence am I having? And is it something that I'm comfortable with? And I think that that's, that's a great position to be in as an educator. It's a great position to be in as a person. It's the, it's the ability to have to understand things on a deeper level in order to understand how you're affecting people around you, not just kids, but your friends, your family, your, your social circle. You have an impact and they have one on you. It's just children, it's easier to see, I think. And so it reminds us of that. And when your job, like mine was on Catalina, is to take a group of kids out snorkeling and convince them that I am a trustworthy enough person that you just met that you can follow me into the ocean at night. And we're going to turn off all our flashlights and we're going to splash around and I'm going to keep you safe. And I'm going to teach you something. Maybe not even while you were thinking about it. Maybe you were just feeling hypothermic at the moment. But that, like, I'm a guy who you can follow. 
and I'll bring you back. Changed. Is, at least that's what I was trying to go for. Right. So we're talking about saying things or asking questions to kids that are profound to them, making them think. What is something a kid has told you or asked you that really made you think or is profound or is a lesson that you've never heard before? Oh, man, that's, that's a great question. Well done. Um, there was a kid. Oh, my God. This takes me back. He was 12 years old. We were on a night hike. And he said to me, uh, he said, uh, you know, we'd been hanging out for a few days maximum. It was a five-day group, so he must have only known me for two days. And he said, you know, hey, I, I have something I want to talk to you about. I'm like, okay. Which, when a kid says that to you, you should always kind of have your, just be ready, bring your A game when a kid says something like that. You know, they're, they're about to open up a little bit. And I, I don't know that I had my A game. I think I was thinking about the next activity that I had planned. And the kid said to me, you know, I was at a party. No, I'm seeing a girl. I'm dating a girl or whatever, which, you know, is a thing that some people do, I guess, in seventh grade. I, I, I didn't. I was, I was a long ways away from that at seventh grade, like a decade. And um, he says that this girl was at a party that he wasn't at, and some guy kissed her. She didn't want to be kissed. Um, and she told him about it. And he was saying, should I break up with her? He asked me that. And I remember at the time I was early in my career and I remember just being like, you know, it's, it's a conversation that is hard to have with new educators. How do you talk to kids about things like romance and sexuality and uh, relationships? And I think that there's a tendency to just avoid the topic entirely. And that's what I did. I said to this kid, eh, that's not really the kind of thing we talk about here. You know, I'm not comfortable talking about that. That's something you should discuss with a chaperone or a teacher. And to this day, I kick myself about that. That was a missed opportunity. And what I really wish that I had said there was, the easy question is, how do you think she feels? Like, what, what is she dealing with uh, leading into a conversation about consent? Like, you know, what... <laughs> there's like a million things that I would say to that kid now. And, and I hope that he followed up with a chaperone or a parent or something. And I, I just, I did not have the skill or the confidence at that time to engage in that. And part of that was training. Part of that was my age, but it's hard to take a 22, 23 year old environmental educator and be like, well, if a kid talks to you about sex and they're 12, here's what you need to say. And, and now I, I have such a clear idea I can tell you what to say. And what you say is you emphasize empathy. You talk about mindfulness, like how does this other person feel? And you talk about values. You say like, what is important to you in a relationship? Whether it's something as specifically easy like that, like she didn't give consent. She, it wasn't her choice. Like you, why would, you know, uh, if you were going to dump her, what would be your reasoning? And how do you think that would feel? You know, easy questions like that but even more complex issues of just like what's important to you are ones that I think I could field now easily, but that I would be interested in talking to other educators about doing if I were ever in that position again to train them. Because I think educators need to be prepared in those moments to respond because that's the burden we take on when we're hanging out with other people's children is we are trying to inspire them and change them and I think in that moment, I missed perhaps my best opportunity 
to have a positive impact on that kid. And I don't know. It's sometimes those moments, though, that you need to experience in order to evolve a little bit as an educator. But that, that would be a big one that always stands out in my mind. Okay. Let's talk about David and inspiration here. In a past episode, I talked to Joe Williams about the idea of the seasonal lifestyle versus the seasonal mindset. And you made a comment that you have the lifestyle, but not necessarily the mindset. I'd love to hear the full idea you have behind that. I've only seen you in the seasonal lifestyle. Like you said, you've never had a nine to five. I've never seen you in that. And I definitely think your mindset is different than almost all seasonals in a way. So it's always fun to hear your thoughts because they're always profound and unique. Oh, thank you. I like to think so. I didn't say they were good. Oh. (laughs) So let me hear the mindset versus lifestyle idea and where you fit in there. I think for me, I mentioned it earlier. I got out of college. I had majored in political science. And for anybody listening out there, if you want to do fun, interesting, weird careers, major in political science because, you know, unless you go into politics, which actually in some ways I I think I probably would have really enjoyed. I I loved that field. I still love it. Political science is about taking all the information you have and trying to solve problems. Every other field, it just gathers information, I I tend to think, or, or like tries to solve easy problems, like engineering, like how strong does this beam need to be? It's not an easy problem necessarily that can be extremely complex, but there's not like a philosophical question of like, should the beam be stronger? There's an answer there and, you know, cost and all that factors in. Whereas political science is always trying to come up with an answer. And I love that about it, but it didn't translate into any careers. And so at the end of that summer, I went back to summer camp after college. And at the end of that summer, they started recruiting me for the education program on Catalina. And they were going to pay me to keep doing what I knew how to do, which was be at that same facility on the west end of Catalina Island in this beautiful sunshine on dirt roads and, you know, rolling around gardening and gazing at the night sky and going in the ocean with kids. And that I kind of fell into out of fear as much as anything. And that's one of the things that I think is so funny. you you talked to Tim Hemme recently about making fear-based decisions and, and how that doesn't tend to lead you in a good place. And I'm not saying I actually really agree with Tim Hemme in his episode that he was he's right. You shouldn't make decisions out of fear. But every now and then, for me, they, they worked out, uh, particularly there. I was afraid of a traditional job. There wasn't anything that was calling to me. I didn't feel like I could make it. And so I just clung to what was familiar. And I was very, very lucky that what was familiar was seasonal work. I, I was, I had already kind of got my foot in the door. Um, and so I never really had another type of job, not one that I was serious about. And suddenly the focus went from me just being as loud as I needed to be or as funny or singing or being nerdy or whatever to actually having lesson planning, needing to plan a curriculum, needing to take the time to think about what I was saying to kids and utilize every possible second to make sure that I was trying to get something across worth learning. And our objective there was trying to teach them about where things come from and where they go and what impact their choices are having on the world. That when you flip on the light switch, there's a whole system that is in place in order to make, to light up the room. That when you throw something away, it's going somewhere. 
And it may not be where you think it is, or you may not be comfortable with the process that it is and just connecting them with their environment around them. And that was, I don't know, that was an incredible position to be in because I think at the end of the day, they're there for five days. I had to do it every day for years on end. And then eventually I had to train other people how to do it. And it basically became another education. It became this, I can do a pretty good job of passing for someone who majored in marine biology or environmental science just because I was responsible for talking to kids about it. And that, I think, I don't know, those experiences, I just kept doing that. At the end of each season, I would just kind of plan to go back. And I was working seasonally. I was in this position where, you know, it was only, it was, God, what was it at Cal? The summers were eight weeks with kids and like a week and a half with training. And then the kelp seasons were in the fall, 10 weeks. And then like a week and a half in training and like two weeks in training. And then three weeks of training uh, in the spring and then like a 12 week season. And that was something that was amazing at that company was uh, the Catalina Environmental Leadership Program. If you were doing that three season grind, if you were doing the spring, the summer and the fall, you would spend like five five or six weeks of the year doing nothing but training. And that was exhausting. And especially as I got older and you know, when you're young and training, it's like, Oh God, you know, this sucks. Like I'm, I'm falling asleep. Why do we have to do this? Especially when you're in your second season, the first season you just are like, Oh, this is so beautiful. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm kind of tired, but I'm not really getting it. The second season you're just like checked out. And then eventually you get to a point where you're like, Oh God, I know all this stuff. And, and then eventually they make you start running it. And that's when training goes from being like kind of something you just have to get through and maybe learn something from to being like one of the hardest parts of the whole year because I've got to think about a creative way to explain how to educate to educators. And that challenge, though, certainly increased my understanding of it. And I don't know, that was, I, I think I'm getting off course of your question. You were kind of asking about seasonal life here, but... I think it's going in a good direction, but I asked more about why you don't think you have the seasonal mindset. Oh, yeah. I got lost on education. Um, I, I, think, I think for me, I haven't worked that many places is, is one huge difference between me and, and, say, Mary or Devin or some of our other friends here in this scene is that I worked basically – the reason I'm talking about Catalina so much is – I didn't really work anywhere else. I got out of college at 22 and I worked there like consistently summer, uh, fall and spring until, uh, God, 2014. So that was, I graduated in 2010 and then for four years, that was basically my life. I was at the same place. I did not have another job. Um, I would travel a little bit in the winter and I would stay there. And then I worked one summer in San Francisco as like a teacher's assistant at a day camp. And then I went, not 2014, 2013 that happened. Anyway, um, and then I started coming up to Ketchikan. And those are the only places I've been. I did one summer in San Francisco, like eight years on Catalina, and then four summers in Ketchikan. And that's it. I kind of tend to... put down roots, I guess, is a little bit the thing is everywhere I've worked has been seasonally, but I've stayed there. I don't travel the same way as some of the seasonals do. I don't make a bunch of money and then leave the country and go on, go on a long trip or adventure. I kind of just, 
tend to keep working, but all the jobs that I've had tend to be uh, just, I don't know, interesting, exciting stuff, snorkeling and taking kids to the animal shelter and driving boats really fast and trying to find salmon or whatever it is. I, I think I live a life that on Instagram looks like constantly this, you know, amazing cascade of adventures. But I think in a lot of ways, I don't, I don't think that way. I don't, I don't move the same way as some people do. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It is a good Instagram though. Oh, thank you. I, I'm really proud of it. <laughs> what is a financial lesson that you know that other seasonals need to know as well, but you don't see them practicing it? I think this is one of those, one of those things about mindset that is a little different be- between me and seasonals. And this was something that came out early on Catalina was I, I think I've always been like thinking about saving money and in- investing a little bit. And it's something that got kind of drilled into me by my parents and grandparents. And it's just something where it's like, I think of the money I have now not as what it is today, but what it could be, right? Uh, All the time, every dollar that you have just sitting under your bed in the bottom of your hiking backpack, because you're a hippie or something, um, or whatever is, is degrading a little bit because of inflation. And you, as a responsible adult, I think need to be thinking about ways around that, ways to grow money. If you've got money sitting around that you don't actively need, it's worth thinking about investing and trying to envision what it could be, not what it is. And I think that's that's the big thing that I think, going back to the financial crisis in 2009 that kind of, I think, put me on this path is a thing that our generation in particular is marked by. Everybody remembers the stock market just falling out. And there's this fear of it. There's this idea that, oh, stocks are uh, risky. You know, it's just gambling. Who knows? It could all come apart. It won't go apart in the long term, or at least I don't believe that. I think in the long term, it's tough to lose. And I think seasonals tend to, maybe it's just the age of people that I'm talking about here, but tend to think, oh, God, you know, I'm not going to live long enough to retire. Or, uh, you know, I, I, why would I save a few thousand dollars here when I could go to Thailand, you know, and, and burn through it all? And I've never been that person. I, and there's some trips I haven't done, though, as a result that I kind of wish I had a little bit. But I don't know. I, I think I really get excited, maybe a little nerdy about investing money and seeing where it can go. And for the longest time, that was like about individual stocks. I remember watching like Chipotle stock back in college and just starting to pay attention a little bit and knowing that it was going to grow and, of course, not doing anything about it because I was poor and in college back then, and, like, applying political science, like, reading the news and understanding a little bit about where the economy is going. Not that I have some crystal ball or anything because if I did, I'd, I'd probably use it. But, like, <laughs> that, um, you know, seeing things like reading about uh, rice shortage worldwide and predicting it a week in advance that, like, you know, guys, I think they're going to increase the cost of a burrito at this restaurant. And then like a week later being like, oh my God, I'm amazing. You know, and, and that kind of, that kind of thing coming out, like how can you apply the knowledge that you have of some of these companies to try to make a buck? And that was kind of something that I was interested in for a long time. I've gotten past that. And now I just want people to all get into mutual funds and be super boring and just become the market. Yeah. And, and I think that it's not about making 
like passive income for you to use. It's not about like not working. It's about preparing for retirement because chances are all these people that are doing what we are doing pretty much. I mean, you, you can't work seasonally very easily and have things that are going to kill you early. I mean, as long as we don't get eaten by a bear, you know, I feel like we tend not to be addicted to heroin, you know, or, or, or be sitting at a desk. Well, we don't have the money for heroin. <sighs> yeah. We spend that it makes on me, airline tickets. That makes me want to look up like relative prices of heroin, but like, you know, like it's just for science. We, <laughs> we, uh, we don't have some of the habits that I think would cause us to die early, you know, as long as we don't fall out of a plane or something or die at sea, which is, I think, something I'm always worried about happening to me or my friends, especially to Ryan. Well, now that you sail. Uh, yeah, no, no. Oh, man. But uh, that we're going to live to a ripe old age. And at that time, I'd still like to be going to fun places and doing fun things. And I, I don't want to be working at this intensity. And... I don't have to work a traditional career in order to retire. And there are people who are working traditional careers who still feel that pressure that like they aren't going to be able to retire, you know, and it's like, well, if you take just a few hours and read a little bit, it's amazing what you can change about your financial situation. And I, I don't know. I'd like what? I think it's just understanding what a mutual fund is. What, what is a mutual fund? Oh, do you really... Give me the quick version. Okay, it's it's basically just a group of stocks that you can buy a share of a group of stocks. They've invested a certain percentage into all these different companies. And so it's an aggregate. So if you if the Apple Corporation like disappeared from the earth, well that'd be extreme. If the Apple Corporation screws up and messes up an iPhone and everybody switches to Samsung, you're not screwed. Because, what? Or Huawei. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're not. You don't have all your eggs in one basket. You have a diversified basket by buying one fund. So you could try to recreate that by picking the perfect stock, and you know, or paying someone to pick the perfect stock. That drives me nuts. This is why people hear me talking about this. And they're like, you should be a financial advisor. Yeah. The seasonals can pick the perfect stock. No, no one can pick the perfect stock. Is is what I've learned. Is that like actively managed funds, those guys who were in suits like in the 90s, like calling people and trading in stocks and trying to beat the market, something like 85% of them weren't beating the market. And, and so you might as well just become the market. You average it as much as you can. You invest in a fund that basically simulates the entire U.S. stock market, and you just don't think about it. And you set up a monthly input into it, and that's, that's it. I mean, that's, that's the reading you need to do is you need to figure out enough to know what a good mutual fund is, what a bad mutual fund is, because some of those mutual funds are actively managed, right? There's like a team of assholes, I imagine, in, in a room somewhere on Wall Street with all the computers and stuff, looking at stocks and trying to beat the market. But the fact is they're probably not beating the market and you're paying them to screw up. Right. And, and, and there's so many companies out there that want to do that, that want you to pay them to pretend that they're going to beat the market or like give you some advantage and they're going to charge you even 1%. There's like this standard in the, in like some of these apps that people use like acorns and betterment. Uh, yeah, that's, that's true. 
But there's, wait, which app? Robinhood. That's what I thought. There is a fee on Robinhood that drove me nuts. There was something. I don't remember what it was. They have some actively managed options, and that's how they're making their money. Is basically they you make money from interest on money that stays in accounts. That makes me want to look up Robinhood because there was some reason I didn't want it. I looked into it, and there was something about it that stopped me doing it. Um, Robinhood's an interesting one. I want to read up on that more. But some of these apps, they have like a 1% fee that they charge you. And that, over the course of your investing life, is to me an unacceptable fee for people to be paying. Uh, Vanguard will charge you like 0.09%. And I, I think that's what the new normal should be, and it increasingly is becoming that. Um, I'm kind of a Vanguard guy. But like, there's a bunch of companies that have kind of followed suit. Um, and that's, that's what I'm always just like, God, I mean, who knows? It's not a huge deal, but I, it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts that the entire financial industry is basically predicated on the idea that you don't know enough to take care of your finances, which frankly is, is true for a lot of people. And I think that they get some peace of mind through going through this cute app or that cute app or going in and talking to a financial advisor, you know, going and putting a face and a name and a handshake and a suit. Cause if they've got a suit on, they must know what they're doing, right? Like, and if they've got a desk and a, and a keyboard, absolutely. Like, there's there's this artifice that I'll is. I'll give them my money. Oh God! Did you say artifice? Yeah, this artifice that like that that these I the financial it. industry puts up so that you will believe that they have some knowledge you can't possess. And I'm not saying that like you should never go to a financial advisor, but you should always be looking at the fees. And frankly your financial advisor probably isn't beating an index fund. And I, I think if you, <laughs> if you put the question to the financial advisor, how are you different from an index fund? I'd kind of love to see them squirm a little bit. I'm sure they've got a snappy answer for it. And how they're beating it is they're shaking your hand. And that's it. And you're going to pay them for the privilege. And it seems like you're not paying them, right? Because it's just 1%. But it's 1% of... Your not the money you have, but what your money could be. Right. It's potential that you pay them, and ugh, I hate that. What is an issue in the world that you think is important enough that you would put some of your time from your life into changing it for the better? Oh man, it's such a good question. I know because I made it up. I I came up with that question because we used to ask kids at Kelp the question what is an issue that matters to you or what's like the biggest problem facing society? And they would always never have any ideas. And so you'd always have to give examples and whatever examples you gave would be what every single kid said. Mm -hmm. And so I started rewording that question to that, to put it on the person who was being asked, like, what is it something you would actually be willing to put time into? What is something that matters? And that's where the kids start to actually come up with interesting answers you start to get answers like women's rights or cruelty to animals or just all sorts of funky, interesting stuff. And uh, I think for me, there's a part of me that wants to like push on like financial stuff. I think that's something that I guess I do a little bit. I'm always talking to my friends and family about that. But that's not, I never want to work in that I, because in order to make money, I'd have to charge you 1%. And I'm ethically opposed to that. Um, I think the work I've really done that I think I believe in most is, is helping kids, especially, you know, I started in this mental health stuff in Ketchikan as kind of a way to 
stay busy in the winter and make money. Um, I needed a job uh, before the season, and I started doing it just for that exact reason. I, and I realized that it's really rewarding for me to be involved with kids and that I love being able to help them, to try to be a stable adult. And I think that there's the potential to shake shake these kids out of kind of their routine a little bit and push them in a different direction. And I'm hoping that my ability is to push them towards a future where, you know, when they get angry, they don't have to hit anybody. When they get sad, they're able to recognize that that's okay, but that they can still do things. That just because you feel terrible or you're scared or you're tired doesn't mean that you have to stop or that you're going to be frozen in place, that you have strength in yourself. And I think that's something that all of us are trying to do all the time. I just think with kids, it's interesting in our society, we're constantly like trying to think about how to help them. And I think once they turn 18, sometimes we forget that people need more support or we assume that once you're an adult, like, you know, it's your right and privilege to have your issues on your own and not need or expect help or it's not my business to help that person. And I think there's lots of ways that people still do it. And I think that's one of the potentials of what you're doing with this, the seasonals undertaking is you're constantly saying to people, look at your life, identify the things you like about it and follow those. Let them bring you somewhere exciting so that you can make the most of the time that you have in the world. And I think that's something that you're constantly putting to friends of yours. That's why you keep bringing people up here. That's why I don't know, there's 10 kelp staff that came up here this summer. And I, I like how, like Tim Hemme described, he recruited somebody who was on his tour. It was just like, uh, that's, that's amazing stuff. And I think life's too short to waste it on things that make you grumpy or to be grumpy. And if, if you're not fulfilled, I think there's great potential for people to just drop what they're doing and change it. But that's, that's a tough thing sometimes. And I think that I'm often in a position to be able to tell kids that it's okay to do that. That like, if this math problem is driving you absolutely nuts, we don't have to do it this instant. Uh, if you need to go outside and take a walk, we can go do that. You know, like that's, that's important too, because it's so much better than just being angry and blowing up and having, having a crisis of emotions. And I think sometimes people don't know that and they need to be told it. And that's something I like to do. You can put off doing your homework until later. Well, that's okay. That's what David says. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't go particularly well for me in organized education. But I mean, if it's, if it's getting to the point where you're losing it, you know, that's, Yeah. Well, great. That's all I've got. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I've looked forward to this for a long time, and thank you for tolerating my rambles tonight. Yeah, you did great. That Um, was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I guess live long and prosper. Yeah! That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out.